Welcome to the Birth Lounge Podcast, an empowering space for expecting and new parents to hear candid conversations with experts, support your mental health, and learn the tips and tricks that thousands of parents have used to craft their ideal birth. We will answer all of your questions, the scary ones and the weird ones, to help calm your fears and feel confident going into your birth. I'm going to help you redefine what birth and motherhood looks like and how to embrace your journey. I've intentionally crafted an amazing list of experts to help you navigate pregnancy, explore your birth options, and plan for postpartum so it can be a time of soaking in your tiny human. We're going to go there on all the hard topics so that you can dive into finding your confidence and freeing yourself from fears around childbirth. With almost 10 years of experience in family education and a master's degree in human development and family studies, I created this podcast as a way to share information so parents can make educated and informed decisions about their care during pregnancy and childbirth. This is a birth community driven by evidence-based information and research in hopes to help you explore your options, understand your rights, and know what choices you have along the way. I'm your host, Hee Hee. Now let's get to the good stuff. Hey, 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 you guys. Happy Tuesday. Welcome back to another episode of the Birth Lounge Podcast. You guys, I am jazzed about this episode. And you want to know why? Because we're going to be talking all about your rights in the labor room, knowing your rights when it comes to hospital policy, advocating for yourself, knowing what the science says, and... I'm sitting down with my good friend, Sarah Martin, who is not only an L&D nurse herself, she's also a mom of nine. Yep, that's right. She has had nine children herself. So you know you're in good hands. I, I get a little riled up in this episode, I gotta be honest, because We really hit some of my buttons. I mean, just hit the nail on the head when it comes to talking about medical manipulation and things that shouldn't happen in the birth room, but unfortunately do. Which reminds me, if you are looking for evidence-based birth education and you've heard that the hospital classes are a waste of time or they're useless or they only teach you what your hospital wants you to know, I hear you. I've heard those same things. I've actually taken some of the hospital classes and I would agree with those statements. It's really hard for hospitals to give unbiased information since at the end of the day, they are a business and they have goals as well. Um, And that includes financial goals too. You want to be careful with the childbirth education that you take. It's important to take one. It drastically reduces your risk of having a C-section. However, it matters which one you take. It should be an out-of-a-hospital childbirth ed course. You need to take a childbirth ed course that isn't connected with hospitals in the area so that you know it's unbiased that there's there's not going to be any influences from the hospital system that's going to sway the education that you get because that's not good solid consensual education 
that's not showing you all of the tools in the toolbox. That's showing you the tools that they want you to have. Um, and that brings us back to having a, you know, a time that wastes your time, a class that wastes your time because if you're not being shown all of your options, it's a waste of your time. Um, one of the reasons I created the Birth Lounge was exactly this. It's very hard to find uh, unbiased, evidence-based, research-backed childbirth education that not only teaches you all of your options, um, but also looks at other countries and various organizations. And actually those last two things, looking outside of the country and various organizations, I couldn't find that in any childbirth ed. And so that's why I created the Birth Lounge. Um, it's actually online childbirth education that teaches you evidence-based, research-backed childbirth education. We look across our nation, across states, across various organizations, but then we also are gathering information and research from other countries so that you know what other countries are doing because, you know, unfortunately, recently our eyes have been open to the faults of our country, I suppose, places where our country could absolutely grow. And maybe it's not unfortunate at all, and it's very fortunate that we now know where our country can grow, and women's health is on that list. I want you to have an empowering and informed, confident birth without proper education and without knowing all of your tools and all of your options and understanding all of the risks and the benefits and the alternatives without having a toolbox full of resources that you can pull from, I don't know how you will be able to have that informed and confident birth. That's why I created the Birth Lounge, and I want you to be able to have this birth. And so I want to let you in on a little bit of a secret, but the doors to the Birth Lounge are opening soon, the first week of March. So be on the lookout, mark your calendars if you've been looking for childbirth education that's going to empower you to have an informed and confident labor absolutely join the birth lounge inside the birth lounge you're also going to find information and support on how to create your ideal birth plan and support for your partner to help them understand not only their role during labor but pain relief measures that they can help you with during labor we're also going to go over all of the medical options for pain relief that you have too since that's super important just in case you want that all right, guys, I'm so excited to dive in with my friend Sarah here. You guys, she is amazing. So not only was she an L&D nurse for a number of years and has nine children of her own, she's also the founder of Traditional Motherhood, and she's really taken her passion that she found on the L&D units and that knowledge and that experience in pregnancy, birth, postpartum to create a community that's dedicated to education and empowerment and support of expectant and new mamas to help them not feel scared of labor. As you can see, we are two peas in a pod. So without further ado, Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and talk with you. I'm so excited to have you. Um, this is, I, I already know it, this is going to be one of my favorite episodes. It's going to be an episode that I forever share. Um, but before we dive in, listeners, I actually have a very special 
kind of conversation for you. I, I would love for all of our listeners to come to today's conversation with a very specific set of ears. And I know this is different than what I typically ask you to do. I, I never try and tell you how to listen or how to hear the conversations that we are having. But Sarah and I are going to be talking about some stickier conversations today, some stickier topics. And I know that we have a wide range of listeners. We do have providers that listen and we do have nurses that listen and we do have pregnant people and postpartum people. So consumers of medicine listening. And so since Sarah and I are talking about stickier conversations, stickier topics with a wide variety of listeners, I want to preface this conversation by saying both Sarah and I are extremely respectful and grateful for medicine. However, with that, we also recognize that there are broken pieces in our medical system. And in order to better those pieces, we've got to lay them all out on the table and talk about the ugly pieces. So nowhere in this conversation do I want you to feel as if we are bashing medicine or bashing nurses or bashing providers. However, we are trying to bring a level of awareness for everyone involved. There are things that providers don't realize that we need to be talking about. There are things that nurses don't realize that we need to be talking about. And then there are things that consumers of medicines, pregnant people and postpartum people need to be talking about in order for us as a nation, as a team, as people who support other humans in this parenthood journey, we've got to be talking about these hard conversations, guys. And you know that I don't shy away from hard conversations. Mm -hmm. You know that I will dive headfirst into them. And so I want you to come here with an open heart, but also listening through the ears of we are simply highlighting some places that our maternity care, our whole medical system actually in America could do a little better. So with that being said, Sarah, thank you so much for being here today. I'm yeah. super excited to dive into all of this. Um, I gave you a formal introduction. So our people know you on, on like a, a formal level, but who is Sarah Martin behind the mic? Who are you just on an average, everyday level? All right. Well, I am a mom, first and foremost. I have been a mom for almost for over 20 years, which is crazy. I have adult kids, which doesn't even seem possible. Um, I have nine babies. Um, so I have everything from uh, my oldest is 22. I have 10 month old twin babies. So, so fun. Um, and I am just, I, I'm a nurse um, is my background. I've worked in uh, labor and delivery and postpartum for a number of years. Uh, I stepped out of that while I was pregnant with my twins um, and have enjoyed being at home with them since. Um, and then I have taken like that, that the passion that I have for birth. I mean, obviously you don't, you don't go through that many pregnancies if you don't like love everything about it. Um, but I am so passionate about pregnancy and birth and postpartum and all the things. Um, so I have then taken that and I'm now like launching traditional motherhood so that I can support other women to help them love it too. So <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> and I always joke that I'm going to be, I'm afraid I'm going to be addicted to being pregnant. I'm afraid that I am going <laughs> to literally love being pregnant. I'm going to pop my babies out and be like, oh, 
let's do this again, right? <laughs> and you're like, what the heck? No. Um, I just, I, I just, I feel it. I feel it in my bones that when I'm pregnant, I just think I'm going to be so addicted to being pregnant. So I could also see myself having nine children one day. Um, I joke. I'm like, I'm not sure if this is a thing, but if baby hoarding is a thing, I think I have it. I'm a baby I'm doing it. I just, because <laughs> I just love it. Oh my goodness. That is yeah. so awesome. I love that so much. Okay. So to, I wanted to have you on the show today because of your experiences as an L&D nurse and mm-hmm. also your, your experience as a mom, right? We're going to talk about navigating the hospital system, but then I would also like at some point for us to touch on birth trauma and mm-hmm. what kind of control people the consumers of medicine, the pregnant people, the postpartum people actually have themselves because, you know, listeners, you know, and, and Sarah, you know, my whole deal is that you're driving this ship, right? You're in control here that the hospital system was designed long, long, long ago to support birthing people. But as we've learned more about birth, as we have seen the trends that have come from birthing in the hospital system, as we have seen the trends that have come from our current policies and our current, you know, kind of restrictions, they're not pretty. They're not always pretty, right? We have some pretty stats, but for the most part, our maternity care, we don't really actually have that great of stats. And so mm-hmm. I'm really on this mission to, to change that. We are in America. We have resources. We have the educated people. We have all the means to change our maternity care system, yet it's not being done. And so that's where I want to kind of take this conversation. So let's open up the floor and can we just talk about, um, gosh, it's so broad and there's things that we could talk about. I mean, we could be here all day. Let's just talk about navigating the hospital system. Let's open it up there. So sure. you're pregnant and then what? What do you as an L&D nurse think that people should know about navigating the hospital system throughout pregnancy? I think the first thing that people need to realize is that they have choices. And I think that is really super important. Um, And that alone allows you to have a lot of power and can be very empowering. Um, But it's also important to know what your choices are and who's guiding them, right? So I think first and foremost is choosing a provider and choosing a provider that really fits with you and, you know, kind of having an idea of what you want your birth to look like when you're choosing a provider, because, um, you know, you can get referrals from friends or get, you know, advice from friends, but really if your birth goals look different than your friend's birth goals, then how you jive with that provider is going to, is going to be very different. So um, I think choosing your provider um, to match with your goals is like one of the first things that you can do. Here's the downside. And here's something that um, I've seen change through the years from my first births to now is how different it is in, at least here where, where I'm located in Wisconsin, um, 
how you don't, you can choose a provider, but you're really choosing a practice. Mm. It's all of the providers. Yeah. Which I think is so incredibly challenging as the pregnant woman, because, okay, I've taken the time. I sit down, I interview this person. I say, this one really fits with me. Yes, this is great. I'm going to go with this person. And then you go to make your next appointment and, oh, you're not going to see this person. You're going to see that one. And you're going to see this one. And although I think it's okay to like meet these different providers, I think that it's really important. And this is something I think that as a community, we do need to start pushing back on is saying, you know what? I don't want it to be this toss up. I want the ability to choose a provider and have that provider be there for me. Now, I know that that's not something that we're going to be able to change here instantly, you know, overnight. But one thing that I think um, that I, that we do see from time to time in labor and delivery is that if you find a provider that you really feel comfortable with, ask them if they will special you ask them if they will attend your birth, commit to attend your birth. Some of them really will. Um, another thing is see if you can have a couple of peep providers in the practice who agree to be, okay, this is going to be, this is, this one said they'll special me, but this one's going to be my backup. And this one's going to be my backup. Now I can't guarantee that they're going to do that, but it's worth having that conversation because I think who your provider is. Now I will tell you as a labor and delivery nurse, how different your plan can be dependent upon who your provider is and the providers and the way that they practice can be vastly different because you have some who are approaching things from all is well we'll watch and see how our things are going make sure mom's mom's well baby's well no need to do interventions and then you have some who are practicing from a place of fear and they, they, the, the providers themselves, where it's just, they're much more anxious. They want to do all the things and all the tests and, you know, um, all the interventions because it makes them feel more comfortable. And so really, you know, so much really does rest on the provider that you have. And so I think if starting there and having a conversation with the provider that you choose and saying, Hey, how can I be sure that I get a provider that I'm comfortable with? And what can, what does your practice, what will your practice do to help ensure that? And, um, you know, if that's not the case, then, and not that you shouldn't do this anyway, but absolutely. If you have somebody who is like, Nope, you get one of eight of us doesn't, you know, that we don't specialize anybody, then you absolutely hundred percent get a doula that you will have as your birth advocate, who is there supporting you, knows your plan, knows, you know, because, because it's very challenging while you're in labor to be trying to, you know, be the one who's thinking through everything because now you have a brand new provider who's throwing new things at you. So I could not share in that sentiment more, I don't think. So, you know, that's one of the things that we really kind of do very differently than the, the mainstream doula industry here at Tranquility by Hehe is we are with our clients for months. So we actually will not sign a client past seven months of pregnancy. If mm -hmm. you don't get with us, you know, before seven months, 
it's it's a tough sale to get me to sign you because I really want our team to know you extremely intimately. Um, the typical doula is going to meet with you once or twice before your labor. We meet with you a minimum of six times. So if we are not able to get all six of our meetings in with you, it, we are not doing you any good. Unfortunately, we can't serve you 100%. And I am the type of person that I, I won't serve someone half-assed. So I will either serve you 100% or I will choose 0% and you'll have to find somebody different. And so for me, um, our our one-to-one clients actually do get to avoid this, that, that type of what I call the wheel of chance, right? And it doesn't so much matter who shows up to their labor because of the intimate relationship that we have, but you are correct. Not a lot of people have that. And so many people don't know that your provider is so unlikely to be at your birth. It is. And that goes directly against nature. We know that the sphincter law states any new face, voice, or energy that comes into your labor space has the potential, the big potential to Mm -hmm. disrupt your labor pattern. So why did we build a system that doesn't support biology and nature? And I, I have to think, you know, we didn't build the system to to accommodate this many births. This is, I don't think this is ever kind of how our hospital system saw itself growing, but kind of like what I said at the beginning of the, of the episode, we've got to readjust. We have to be like, okay, now we have not revisited our hospital system in 300 years. We should rethink about this, right? We should think about how we are supporting birthing people and is it appropriate for what we know about birth and it's just not so much of what we see in in L&D isn't supportive of unmedicated undisturbed physiological birth it's true so I have actually with with all of my births I have had pretty much every experience that you can (laughs) that you can have so I had my first two babies um in the hospital, um, with an OB. Um, and this was back. So my first daughter was still back at the time that like an episiotomy was a routine thing that you kind of just did for everybody, which physical birth trauma, like that is so real. That still, I think was the most difficult, um, recovery that I had (laughs) was from an an unnecessary, you know, episiotomy that was done. Um, So I had my first two babies in the hospital with an OB. And so that, you know, was a a shake of the dice who's, which provider is going to be there. You know, um, you don't know the nurses before you get there. Um, Then I had my next um, two babies with a midwife in the hospital. And this particular midwife did take all of her own births. So even if she was not the one on call, she would take her own births and she would sit at your bedside from about seven centimeters on. And she was so present. It was just, it was so different. It was such a, you know, a a great experience to have like that, that familiar face, you know, to have her walk in and be like, Oh yes. You know, and, and even what a different experience it was prenatally because of the fact that you are building this relationship with them. And, and so it's not just about this particular pregnancy. I mean, she knew about my family and family stressors and things to be considering for postpartum. And, you know, um, 
it was very different. My, the next birth that I had my fifth baby, um, my husband switched jobs about halfway through. And so we had to change insurance. So I had to move from her to um, another midwife. It was in a different city. And this was a group of midwives. So this was, again, back to that, you make an appointment with the midwives. And I think the one who actually attended my birth um, was not somebody I had even seen before, you know, prenatally. Now, also because I came, you know, halfway through the pregnancy into the practice. And so, you know, I didn't even have the full opportunity to um, meet everybody. But I think my first two births with seeing different doctors, I didn't know anything different. And so it didn't hit me as hard until that fifth baby when I had had the benefit of having that midwife who was dedicated to me, who I knew she was going to be there, who took the time prenatally to get to know me. That's, I really felt the drastic difference when I made that change and then had the group of midwives because I really did. I just felt like I was a pregnant lady instead of I was Sarah Martin, who they wanted to get to know. It was almost this like, well, I don't really know if it's worth spending the time getting to know you because I'm not sure if we'll ever see you again. I mean, certainly they didn't say that, but that's how it felt in those visits, you know? Um, so, I mean, that the, the labor was fine. Um, but uh, then actually we had this eight year gap from my number five to my number six. And in this, during this time, um, I had fallen just ever more in love with um, pregnancy. And this is, I, I didn't go back to nursing school until after I had my fifth baby. So I went through nursing school. And so now I was working as a nurse and I was working actually um, in doing like education in um, a crisis pregnancy center. And so I was at a conference and I happened to meet this home birth midwife and we start chit chatting. And um, it was like, oh my gosh, we just, you know, when you meet someone and it's like, you just connect, you know, they're like, oh, you're speaking my language. Right. So, um, it was really cool. I connected with her. So, okay. So let me just throw this in because it's just kind of a cool part of my story is that, um, after my fifth baby, my husband had a vasectomy, a successful vasectomy. Okay. Eight years later, miraculously undone, undone. So I meet this midwife in, in like November, December. Um, I fall in love with her. I want everybody that I've ever, you know, known who's pregnant to be delivering with her at home. Um, and in January, I find out I'm pregnant and I think, oh my gosh, you were brought to me for this birth. So, um, for some odd reason. Okay. I've always wanted to do a home birth. And my husband's been like, uh, no, uh, no, I don't think so. No. So all of a sudden I come to him and I say, oh my gosh, like we're pregnant. Can you believe it? Like after that shock, you know, wears off for him. Um, I'm like, I want to do a home birth, uh, you know? And he's like, okay. And it was like, it was, it was, it was a magical, magical. So my next two, my sixth and my seventh, I had it home. Um, with the support of this midwife, which is so incredibly different, it's so incredibly different. And it's one of those that it's like, it's like having this gourmet feast and never again being able to go back to fast food. <laughs> you know, like it's just, it's, 
or, or you just notice this big difference. Um, now my sixth pregnancy or my labor was, it was not an easy one. It was not like, oh, you know, it was quick and, and well, no wonder it was your sixth baby. So all of it would have seemed easy. No, I labored. Um, he was, he was posterior, you know, he stayed that way, like the whole labor. Um, and so I made this regression from like nine centimeters, swollen cervix back to seven, you know, but back labor, the whole day. Yes, yes, yes. But her, like just looking back on it, even, even immediately after, oh, followed by like a shoulder dystocia, mm. of course, you know, why not? Why, why not? not throw that in there? <laughs> but, but honestly, that experience like even immediately after I felt like it was great. It was wonderful. It was, she handled it so beautifully. I felt so well supported. There was never any anxiety there, um, which was, it really was so different. I, I, um, in my fourth delivery, I also had an OP baby. There was a lot of like anxiety. I had a, a student midwife actually, who was working there, um, with my midwife, um, it was like very traumatic so much so that with my fifth, when I found out I was pregnant with my fifth, I'm like, I'm having an epidural. I can't do that again. I had had, I had had four unmedicated births. I had swore I would never have an epidural. Just, it was so like traumatic just because you know what, like you're just, I don't know. It, it just, it's handled so much differently. Like you don't, at least my experience, I wasn't encouraged to move out of positions. I still delivered on my back, knees, you know, pulled back. I mean, just things that like now that I've learned as a nurse and as, you know, um, my experiences that I'm like, oh, well, why did we do that? Had we done this other thing, you know? So it's again and again and again, it comes back to the more knowledge you have, the more you are able to plan for your birth, advocate for your birth and remove these risks of birth traumas. And, you know, the things that, I mean, you can't control who your provider is. You can't control, you know, um, what nurses you get, but you can absolutely control how prepared you are, how much, you know, um, what it is that your ideal birth is making sure that you're coming to decisions, not out of fear, but out of, you know, keeping that ideal in mind and choosing your support. I mean, there's so much that we can do to be our own advocates, even before coming, you know, to the hospital. And I think that's really, that's really what I think is the the most important piece of like navigating, you know, the the medical community is, um, equipping yourself with knowledge and with support and with a community of people that you feel are unbiased and who are able to offer you education, not on now, not an education on here's what you're going to have happen when you come to the hospital. You know, that's your traditional hospital birth class. Um, you know, is okay. So you're going to go into labor. You're going to come in. 
we're going to register you. We're going to start an IV. We'll get you going on some fluids. We're going to monitor you, you know, and just all of this, like, here's what's going to happen to you, which is so backwards, so backwards. Instead, like, here is the process of labor. Here are the things that you may experience. Here are your options with each of these stages. We're going to be here to support you, you know, and it's just, it should all be about this, hey, we're going to stand back here and we're going to make sure that we provide this space for you that is safe and supportive while you labor, you know, and put the woman and her baby and her support team back in the center. You driving the ship. It, it puts exactly. you as a gestational parent yes. back yes. as the captain of this ship, which is yep. how nature designed it to be. This is actually yep. how biology <laughs> intended for birth to go is for the gestational parent to be in control of this entire situation. And if we really, really want to get down to the bottom of it, nature really designed it to be quite a private event. There, there doesn't need to be a lot of people around. And actually the more people that are around, the more it hinders your birth process yet in a hospital, especially in the teaching hospital. And, you know, um, listeners I'm in Boston. And so I'm very, very lucky and, and just so blessed to be able to learn under some of what I think actually are like the best doctors and providers in the whole world. I really do believe that Boston houses some of the most incredible providers. However, with that comes med students, residents, nursing students, students who are literally there for one day, students who are literally there for four hours. And that person is going to now come and stick their fingers in your vagina or be able to actually, you know, put their hands on you and practice on you because that's what they need to do. And I get it. I know, I know there are nurses being like, hee hee, don't even do this. I am going to do this, you guys. I am going to do this. I hear you that you need to learn. I was there as well. I promise I get that part of it. There are so many, there are millions of birthing people that if someone doesn't want you to learn on them, it is okay. The chances that the next person are okay with you practicing on them is so high. You guys, please don't take it personal. And, and for listeners out there who are pregnant, you are under no obligation to let these people practice on you. If it doesn't feel aligned to you, you owe nobody to be this practice patient, right? Again, the likelihood that someone right after you is going to be okay with it, totally fine. And, and very, very high. That person behind you is probably going to be totally okay with it. Now, listeners, um, you're probably, some of you are probably thinking like, what the heck is an L&D nurse doing having a home birth? Well, I want to introduce you to a documentary called Why Not Home? And it was actually created by an OBGYN who began to see how devastating our maternity care can actually be and how detrimental it can be to the natural birth process. And she began to plan and went on to have a successful home birth. And then so did so many of her colleagues. And this documentary, Why Not Home, um, you can uh, find it online. You'll have to Google it. Typically you have to pay for it. It's usually like two or $3. Um, it is worth watching because I think it does a great job of contrasting 
medical professionals who care for people within the hospital system, yet these medical professionals understand that there are other options to birth their babies and that just because they work in the hospital system doesn't mean that that hospital system is the best place for them to have their babies. And so therefore, they chose a home birth. I really think that, um, so I went to the opening night here, the premiere night here in Boston. I was invited to a private showing and I got to go. Nicholas and I both attended and it was amazing. It's a great documentary. And I think that it, it will give you a lot of confidence in home birth and it will show you that home birth is not dangerous, first of all. And I think it will show you the confidence that that a lot of medical professionals actually hold in home birth, therefore opening up some more, you know, kind of doors to you. Sarah, can you talk to us about, and maybe you didn't experience it, but was there any sort of stigma with you being an Ellen D nurse and choosing to birth outside of the traditional hospital system? Um, honestly, no, because <laughs> um, it, just because the people who know me are like, oh yeah, <laughs> of course she did. Why would we expect anything different? Because I am just, um, one of the analogies that I like to use with pe for people to kind of understand um, why or, or how I feel view um, labor and birth is like, because we do hear, you know, oh my gosh, you had your baby at home. Like, what if something goes wrong? And what if this, and you know, what about that? And, you know, your babies can die. And it's like, okay, look, birth, labor and birth is a natural process that our bodies were designed to do. Yep. Similar to eating, yep. swallowing, yep. digesting. We do that every single day, understanding that you can choke, you can have you know issues there when you are eating, um, and when there are issues like dysphagias or when people have complications, sure, they might have to have different interventions, right? But for, for you and I, for, for most people who can chew and swallow and things just fine, even though we understand that there's a risk, we don't run to a hospital every single time we're going to eat something because we trust that our bodies are going to do as they were designed to do. And for at some point in history, we've made that shift where all of a sudden birthing babies is not this natural process like, like swallowing. And it's, you know, something that like, oh my gosh, like we need to, you know, we need to have all these interventions and we need to even be starting interventions before in anticipation that something might happen. And it's like, why? What are we doing here? It, yeah. It's a natural process. Your body knows exactly mm -hmm. how to birth that baby. It was designed to do that. And if we just take this approach instead of, Hey, everything is going to be fine because my body knows what to do. You know, um, one thing that I think does not get enough um, uh, exposure or that we don't talk about enough is how negative fear is in the birth process. And so even putting that idea in, your, in a woman's mind of like, wait a minute, you need you need to be there because bad things can happen. You know, like we need to shift our minds to, you know, again, like expecting our bodies 
to do what they were designed to do, trusting them to do what they were designed to do and believing that they're going to and not reacting unless we need to. And taking this position of, you know, everything is going well. I'm here to support you. You've got a support team. You have nothing to fear. You know? And can we also talk about the fact that just by being in the hospital doesn't mean that you're avoiding bad things? Like if we look Mm -hmm. at hospital stats, you guys, they're actually pretty ugly. They're, they're not good. I, I, I mean, this is one of those sticky conversations, right? Where we're just bringing light to something that really needs to be talked about. We are not achieving good stats. So if we want to talk about, well, birth is supposed to be done in the hospital because so many years ago, all these babies died. You are correct. You are very correct. A bunch of babies died. A bunch of mamas died. For those particular reasons, prodromal labor, breech babies, uh, placenta eruption, right? For the things that we already know are risk factors, yes, those people risk out of home birth, of course. But those people make up about 7 to 10% of all births. So why do we have 10% of births in our country, not even, happening in the home, but 90% happening in the hospital? And then if we look at birth trauma stats, one in nine women are going to walk away with birth trauma when one in nine women are the only people that actually need to be in the hospital. Eight out of nine women needed to be in their home. And we could have avoided those nasty stats. So if we want to talk about deaths of babies and deaths of moms, we really need to re-look at our whole entire and the whole entire paradigm, right? We've got to shift 90% of normal, standard, typical, what we expect pregnancy to be, births back into the home. And those 10% of high-risk people who we know are not safe to be in the home, put those people in the hospital, and I guarantee our stats will do a complete 180. We're going to see our C-sections go down. We're going to see inductions go down. We're going to see birth trauma go down. We're going to see NICU stays go down. We're going to see, oh my gosh, probably our infant mortality and our maternal mortality go way down. I guarantee our black and brown people stop dying at such a high rate. Why can't we figure this out? How does somebody like me, who just has a master's degree, and I've been in this for five years, look at this and say, gosh, it feels like such an easy fix, but our nation and people who are much more decorated in degrees than I, we haven't been able to fix it. It, it, it like bothers me on a really soul level. I have to be completely honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Y- you know... <laughs> I feel like it has, it rests too in this idea of um, we as women don't trust ourselves anymore. Well, we've been taught not to. Correct. That our bodies will not do this. How many women have you heard say, my body failed me? And I want to go, no, ma'am. No, ma'am. It did not. Mm -hmm. Your doctor failed you. Society failed you. The hospital system failed you. That epidural failed you. Your childbirth education failed you. Your mama failed you by telling you that she had three C-sections. And so you were doomed to a C-section. Do not tell me your body failed you. Now, 
10%. Again, I, I want to, there are people out there being like, no, absolutely. I went into labor at 23 weeks pregnant. My body failed me. I hear you. Absolutely. You will always have those people on the outside of the spectrum, but 90% of people, your body did not fail you. Something else failed you and you deserve to know what that is. You deserve to go through your birth and to figure out where and what and who failed you so that next time it doesn't happen. It's different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just want to share a story that I had personally um, with this idea of um, the, the doctor being the expert on my body. Okay. So as I shared my sixth baby that I had at home, um, which I felt completely comfortable with and was absolutely amazing. Um, my, my husband was a little bit more um, traumatized by the, the shoulder dystocia. Okay. So um, I got pregnant between my sixth and my seventh that I um, ended up miscarrying. So um, when I got pregnant, my husband said, Sarah, I think I want to deliver in the hospital again. I think we should deliver in the hospital again. And we had kind of this discussion and I wasn't super excited about that because I thought our home birth was absolutely amazing. And he did, I mean, there, you know, he did, he enjoyed, you know, the, the connectedness that he and I shared that was vastly different from him being um, on the sidelines in the hospital too. Um, However, so I said, okay, you know, I will honor that. I will find, you know, an an OB that I feel comfortable with. So I, again, this was, um, now we were in like a different area um, and I had to find a new provider. So I selected a new provider and I was about 11 weeks and I had not yet seen her. And um, I started bleeding. And now this was my second miscarriage as well as, you know, my eighth seventh, um, pregnancy. So I know my body. I know how I feel when I'm pregnant. I know how I feel when I'm miscarrying. Um, you know, so I, I'm also, um, RH negative. So, um, I knew that I needed a Rogam shot. Um, and so for, for listeners who aren't familiar with that, so (laughs) If you, if your blood type, if you're lacking an RH factor, then you get an injection, a Rogam shot, which helps to prevent any complications in pre or in um, pregnancies down the road um, and pregnancies that you have after the one um, that you're getting the Rogam shot. Anyway, um, it's also important if you're having a miscarriage. So I reached out to the doctor and I said, you know, I called them and I said, you know, I'm having some bleeding. I think I'm having a miscarriage. And so they wanted to, you know, first have me come in and draw labs. And so we did that. And then they did a follow-up visit of a couple days later. So I'm going for the follow-up as well as an ultrasound. And so they're doing, I I should have been about 11 weeks at this point and they do an ultrasound and there's tiny, you know, tiny, um, baby and no heartbeat, heartbeat. Now, also this was during the time that I was working at the crisis pregnancy center. And I, as a nurse was doing first trimester dating ultrasounds. Okay. So I'm familiar with what it should, what I should be seeing on an ultrasound. Um, and so I'm, I'm like, yep, definitely miscarrying. You know, I, I know I'm aware. So, um, I also have my, my baby with me. He was, um, 
oh, maybe about nine months old. Okay. So over, we finally, I get to the, the point of the appointments where I'm going to see the doctor after I've had lab and then I've had the ultrasound and now we've waited, you know, many hours and my baby's fussy and I'm in the room waiting and the doctor or the nurse comes in and I say, you know, I, I'm just, I know I'm going to need a Rogam shot. I just want to make sure that we, you know, that we plan for that while I'm here. And she kind of looks all confused. And so, you know, she comes out, the doctor comes in. Now, this is the first time I have ever met this woman. Um, we've never even, you know, been introduced. She walks in and she goes, hi, um, do you know something that I don't know? Because the nurse keeps saying that you're just asking for a Rogam shot. Like we haven't even confirmed that you're miscarrying. And I was like, um, okay, well, hi, hello. Nice to meet you. You know, and I explained to her, well, I know my dates. I'm very confident in my dates. You know, the, I know how I feel when I'm miscarrying as well as on this ultrasound, you know, this is what we saw. There was no, you know, no heartbeat and no, and, and so she proceeds to tell me, well, you're measuring about six weeks. And so sometimes we would see, you know, um, the heartbeat and sometimes we wouldn't. And I, and I said, okay, first of all, I know that I wasn't, I'm not six weeks pregnant. I know that I would be 11. And also, you know, I said also at five weeks, you sometimes see fetal pole and sometimes you don't at six weeks, you will absolutely see a heartbeat. And she says, what do you do by the way? Right. So <laughs> Um, ultimately, you know, she, um, oh, let me also tell you this at this point, my, my little guy is he's had enough. We've been here for about four plus hours. He's fussing. He's all over the place. She looks and she says, I mean, it might be for the best anyway. I'm sorry. Did you just say that to me? I could not believe it. That was carriage. Yeah. At a miscarriage. Oh, well, he, he, we, it wasn't confirmed yet, you know? So uh, I was appalled. I went home and I told my husband, oh, no. <laughs> if we ever get pregnant again, I am going back to my home birth midwife. This was, and again, I know not all providers are that way, but, you know, it, it was just that, this, like that ego of, I'm sorry, I'm the expert here. Who do you think you are telling me, you know? And, and I'm like, I, no, women are the expert on their body. If I say to you, I, I'm confident in this, you know, we need to tell women like, hey, what you, what you know about your body is valid and you are the expert of your own body. You know, I mean, you can be highly educated and have all this tech textbook knowledge and have all of these experiences. But at the end of the day, each woman is the expert on her own body. And we need to stop telling women, you don't know, because I know, because I have all of the, these credentials. I know better than you. It, you know, it's that in and of itself is birth trauma. 
And how horrendous to have to go in there and defend yourself and uh to basically go into battle when you're already miscarrying a baby that you had just loved for 11 weeks. Like I'm about to cry right now. That is horrendous. Mm -hmm. That is exactly why people are scared to birth in the hospital. That same mentality is what kills black and brown people every single Mm. day. Hey doc, I'm having a little bit of trouble breathing. You're fine. An hour later, drop dead. Had we just listened to them when they told us that something wasn't right with their body, but you brushed them off because you had eight years of studying books. I cannot get over it. I am so sorry that happened to you. I am like, and you know what, Sarah, for me, the worst part is that unfortunately that happens every day. I wish not for your sake, but at your expense that you were the only person on earth that had that story. I really do. And you are not, you are one of millions of people who have had a doctor talk to you like that. Listeners. I have an episode early, early on in the podcast, probably in the forties somewhere that I talk about a very traumatic experience of being physically held down to have an IUD inserted into me as I was screaming. No, um, very horrendous experience. These doctors do absolutely exist. And, and so I think you have a power as you have power as a patient during this, but also afterwards. So Sarah, after we have an experience like this, who do we tell? How can we go back to the hospital and say, I was not treated right and this shouldn't happen to anybody else? Do we contact, I mean, is there anybody at the hospital that we can contact as patients to talk about the grievances that we've had with providers that did not provide compassionate and individualized care? There, there is. And I think that there's two routes that I would go. Um, the hospital as a whole usually has a patient's advocacy um, group or um, representatives. And going that route and reporting it to the patient advocacy um, team is important. I would also there's a more direct contact with like the, um, the management of like the labor and delivery units who, so the supervisor, the, the manager of the labor and delivery unit who works very closely with the providers who deliver there. And even if it was something that happened in the office and not in the um, labor, you know, on the labor and delivery unit, talking to that manager is also something that um, there's sometimes more um, direct communication to the providers about, hey, this is happening and this cannot go on. Um, but also bringing it to the hospital you know, as a whole um, in, with the patient advocacy. Um, and, and also, not being ashamed to tell your story to other people because um, some of these things, like if sometimes we don't even know, it happens so frequently that sometimes we don't even know if 
our feeling of being violated is valid or not. And, and I'll be really honest in watching more and more of your content, he he about informed consent. I found myself reflecting back on being a labor and delivery nurse and going, Oh my gosh, I've been guilty of that. I've been guilty of uh, the routine practice of, um, not asking, but just during pushing, checking to see how they're, how baby's moving, you know, just doing cervical checks during, during that pushing, or we're, we're, we're so deep in the process of things that we have forgotten that this is a person that we are touching. I was just watching the show, The Surgeon's Cut, last night, and one of the doctors talks about how intimately he likes to be with his patient and how at the end of the day, he's not really able to separate, and for him, that's one of the hardest parts of being a doctor, and it brought me to tears. I was on my couch sobbing because that is me. That is me. I so intimately know our clients because these are people. You as the provider, you're working a 12-hour shift. You get to go home. And if that person's vaginas is ripped from their perineum to their butthole, then you never get to see that again. And at their six weeks, it's unlikely that you're going to give them that check. But that person now goes home with a destroyed body. And they have to live with that. They have to live with knowing that they did everything to have the birth that they wanted. And they didn't get that. That to me is one of the most fundamental broken pieces of our medical system is we have taken the humanness out of medicine in the United States. And it is across the board. It is even in palliative care. Mm -hmm. You can see it even at the end of life sometimes that these palliative care nurses come in and you can tell that they're just there for the shift. Well, meanwhile, on the other end of that line is a family who is losing somebody forever. We've got to bring back the human aspect to medicine. People will live the rest of their days with the story that you write for them as a provider and a nurse. And doulas, if you're listening, you're part of that. Everybody is woven into that cloth of their story for the rest of their life. And you can't unravel it. It is what it is. And every single step you take in that labor is undoable. So it must be calculated. It has to be intentional. It has to be consensual because one wrong move and we have now put a stitch in their story that cannot be undone and will forever haunt them. And and I know I sound really kind of passionate about this and and really kind of dramatic, but it is so true. If you stop and think about the severity of how deeply you are impacting someone's life, someone's birth will forever change them. And you as a provider, as a nurse, have a responsibility to make sure that we're stitching their story with love and respect and support and encouragement and no fear. Fear Mm -hmm. has no place in the birth room, period. Absolutely. I, yeah, a thousand percent agree. A thousand percent, you know, and it is something that I am so passionate about too. And, you know, having had my personal experiences with, um, with birth trauma and all the different experiences that I've had and being able to be at, you know, at the bedside, um, some of my most memorable experiences as an OB nurse 
has been being able to be at the bedside when someone is um, has a loss and being able to just love on them and support them in their most vulnerable time. And it just, it's devastating, but it's such an honor to be able to care for somebody in such a time of need and to know that this is a person and really to connect with them on that, on that level, you know, when it's like, I can say nothing and do nothing to make this suck any less, you know, to make this any less horrible, but I can create the space for you and I can step into that space with you and, you know, allow you to have your experience, you know, and to create that, that space and that humanness and that, like, just that connection. And you just know? be, just be mm-hmm. right. Sometimes yeah. saying nothing and doing nothing really is the right thing. So we do loss support through tranquility by he, he, it's not me in particular. I, um, my tender little heart cannot mm-hmm. do that. So that is not mm-hmm. my area of expertise, but we do have a doula that does loss support. Um, and, and, you know, same thing. It's, it's just so incredible to be able to sit and do nothing and say nothing, but you are providing that person with this space and holding that space in a respectful, yep. compassionate manner to help them experience even the shittiest of experiences. Yep. They at least know they're not alone. So mm-hmm. um, I do want to, I want to touch back on some of the things that we've already kind of touched on. Cause I, I just can't let you go without getting some opinions from an L&D nurse. But we had we had talked about that providers sometimes practice from a place of fear. How come? Because they have seen things that are scary, because it's their training, because that's the philosophy of medical school, because this provider has their own baggage. I mean, they're human too, right? So it's not going to take but one or two infant losses for a provider to then wear that on their sleeve. I get that. They're human too. They also are going home with all of these stitched stories and they have to sleep Mm -hmm. at night. And Mm -hmm. I can tell you, um, I have had three babies who have come out and I was extremely scared that we were not going to be able to save these babies. We did. Thank God. I've already said I'm in Boston. I am so lucky to be able to practice under these home birth and hospitals. One of them was home birth. Um, in 2019, I, I truly thought we were going to lose a baby that had undiagnosed down syndrome. And, um, even at five minutes post-birth, we were having very unstable sat levels. Um, oxygen saturation levels for our our listeners. We're expecting oxygen saturation levels to be pretty much back to normal um, by five minutes, 10 minutes max after birth. And at five minutes, we were still way below. Um, And so obviously we called EMS and, and we had to transfer and I was scared. I was really scared. However, that midwife, she commanded that room so well 
that I actually didn't have any fear in me until they drove off in that ambulance. And I literally, I mean, I'm crying right now because it, it just reminds me of how scared mm-hmm. I was. But when mm-hmm. that ambulance left their driveway, I literally fell to the ground. And it was the first time that I had felt emotion because that midwife had commanded that room so well. She never let fear mm. into that room. Not yes. once. She knew what she was doing. She had it under control. She looked at me and said, call 911. She looked at me and said, we need them ASAP. I mean, it was just such a beautiful symbiotic type of interaction, right? She had it. There was a baby nurse there. I was there to call 911. The parents, everyone in the room knew that something wasn't right. But I think even the parents didn't understand the severity of what was happening. Mm -hmm. I was well aware that it was more severe than probably she was letting on. But I did not know until that ambulance actually left wow, that was like, that was probably the most severe thing I have experienced in all of my years as a doula. And it was her energy. It was Mm -hmm. her energy Mm -hmm. that kept all of us calm. And so um, I just recently learned that Apple, the company Apple, right? Mac computers, your iPhone, your watch, they teach their people that if you panic, customer panics. And I thought, oh my goodness, we need to be teaching providers and nurses this. And I will now forever teach my doulas this. You panic, patient panics. Mm -hmm. You stay calm, patient stays calm. Mm -hmm. So poop your pants all you want but please don't let it show (laughs) on your face, right? You can poop your pants if you need to, but at least be in control of your face so that when they are looking Mm -hmm. at you, your patients are not feeling the same fear that you are feeling. I'll Mm -hmm. also tell you this, also in 2019, I mean, 2020 was a really wild year, but 2019 also had some curveballs. We had a baby on a bathroom floor accidentally. Two hour labor um, went from like, okay, we're a little crampy to like, oh my God, I think my baby's head is emerging literally within two hours. Again, I had to call EMS, but I was so calm because Mm -hmm. I trust birth. Even after seeing some arguably very scary things happen after birth, this birth didn't have any of those factors. And so I never felt like that birthing person or her baby was in any danger. Yes, we called EMS because we needed someone qualified there. I, as a doula, am not qualified to deliver a baby. So I knew I needed to call, you know, bigger people. However, I was never scared and neither was this parent, this birthing parent. Her husband was a little bit uneasy, but what birthing person's partner would not be a little uneasy, you know, uh, considering we weren't planning on an unassisted birth. Um, But I think there's something to be said that if your provider is practicing from a place of fear, that is no doubt 1000%. You cannot argue this. It's going to impact your labor in a negative way. Absolutely. Yes. And, and I think it probably is many of the factors that you talked about. You know, I'm seeing scary things, knowing some of the bad things that can happen. Sometimes you see a shift in a provider after they have had a traumatic experience. But oftentimes, 
it's it's kind of the personality of the provider. And you see this not just in OBs, but in other doctors, in the way that they approach practice, in this idea of, if I haven't ruled it out, it's still a possibility that it's there. So like do every test, look for everything, instead of the, the flip side is the, the doctor who says, if you're not showing any signs of anything, we're going to assume everything's fine. Right. Do you know? So this idea of um, I, there, there's something, there might be something wrong and we have to, we have to constantly be looking and we have to have all these interventions because we need to, you know, um, anticipate this and, and it might be this and, and just overdoing it. This, this, this anxious energy. Um, I have one doctor in particular who comes to mind who um, he just, he, he just, that, it, that is his personality. And um, one time he um, came out of a room, his particular practice has midwives. And so he last minute got called in to deliver one of the midwives patients because she was tied up in another room delivering a patient. He, he comes out so flustered and he goes, oh, I don't know how midwives do it. And I, and I go, oh, what do you mean? And he goes, I mean, having an unblocked patient, meaning a patient without an epidural, I, I don't know how they do it. I mean, you just, you have no control in the room. And I unintentionally laughed at him and I said, oh my gosh, doctor, you are in the wrong profession. I said, labor is all about relinquishing control and allowing and, and teaching the woman to do the same. Like, it's not about controlling the birth. I was like, oh my, my, my. And it was kind of like a chuckle moment, but also like, yikes, because that is how he approaches his patients. Is this like, I am not comfortable unless I have full control of what's going on. But so, do you really have control with an epidural because that oh, person no. can't feel, they can't move their body, they can't get out of the bed. Like you really don't have control. You have so much more control if that person can tell you this is hurting or I think I need to move or I don't feel like I'm doing a very good job of pushing. I don't feel like I'm being progressive in pushing. Can I move? Can I get up? I, it, You just have so much more control if that person has feeling. But that type of provider is looking to just, they will handle it. Mm. They're not looking to partner with mm. the patient. It's not this, um, you know, hey, tell me what's going on. It's this, this is what I'm seeing. This is how I'm going to intervene. This is what I'm going to do. This is, you know, it, it's, it's about what they're doing to control it. And so, and, and that is very scary to me. You know, that is, and bothered me so much as a nurse because I, this is where like working within the system just really, I couldn't do it anymore because I felt like this is not authentic to me and I can only do so much. By the time they get to you in labor and delivery, You've missed all this opportunity in pregnancy to provide this education 
on how to plan their ideal birth, how to make decisions, how to be their own advocate. Now they're in the heat of things. And now I'm working, I'm not the one calling the shots. You know, the, the provider is the one who's placing the orders and who, you know, is um, making, talking to the patient about their recommendations for interventions. And so I thought, oh my gosh, I need to step out of this because this does not feel right to me. And I know that I want to be involved in birth and I want to be involved with this amazing process, but I don't feel like my fit is here at the end of it in this role as a labor and delivery nurse, because it did not feel authentic to me. You know, instead I'm like, I don't know, no, like we need to get more women educated on the process, on trusting their body, on shifting that mindset. You know, it would be so sad to me when women would come in with um, this, they'd be like, well, I, I really want to do like um, a natural birth, but I don't really know, like, I'm just going to kind of see how I do. And I think, oh, not because you can't do it, but because when you come in with the mindset of, I'm going to see if I can do it, you've kind of already defeated yourself because you need to come in with that mindset of like, oh, I already know I can do this. I already know I've got this. I know it's going to be hard, but I am strong and I can, I can do this, you know, because even, even those women are going to get, I'm sure you've had this experience. You get to transition and they go, I can't, I can't, I can't. (laughs) And this is when you can shift them back. Like, oh no, you absolutely know you can you believe and and get them to tap back into those beliefs that they've been you know telling themselves and that they've been you know um setting as their over mindset the last few yes. Months. yes 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 and you know and when they come in without that strong mindset and get to transition and then you have a provider who goes oh yeah get an epidural yep yep cuz that's what they're more comfortable with you know and in the moment, the woman is thinking, oh, yeah, 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 that's exactly what I want. And then afterwards goes, oh, I think I could have done it. Or I, I wish I, I hadn't have. Yep. That's what I mean. I I, I, yes, exactly. That's what I mean. I, I, I know. I think I could have done it without an epidural. I wish I hadn't done it. I wish I hadn't gotten it. I wish I had done this. You know, and it, it's those moments of like just having that support, having that like you said, having cultivated that mindset that they can draw upon in those moments, because they're brief, they're brief. That's the shortest, you know, shortest part of labor is that transition. And it, it hits everyone, you know, where it's like, I don't think I can do this any longer. Oh, well, good news. You don't have much longer to go, you know? Um, and so for me, I, I just, I couldn't be a part of the system in that way anymore. It just, it doesn't, you know, and somebody who in, I'm a very passionate person. Um, I'm somebody, actually, my husband has joked with me through the years, why do you always have to rock the boat? Same. (laughs) And I go, babe, I was born standing in the boat. Like, I can't not. I can't not rock the boat. I don't know how to be anything different. And so, you know. Also, if we were on a boat that didn't need rocking, I wouldn't rock it. Like if this was a ship right. that was running smoothly, I'm not going to rock it. I promise I don't rock things that don't need right. rocking. Yes. But if I need to come knocking, 
here I am. I'm mm-hmm. coming knocking. I promise mm-hmm. you, I'm not gonna, I just can't stand by when injustices are happening. And I can't mm-hmm. stand by and watch people be traumatized. And I can't stand by and watch people have unneeded cervical checks that were not consented to. And I, I just, I can't, I never will be able to, it has never been my personality. I was always that child in elementary school. I was that child in (laughs) high school. I was that girl in college. And now I am that grown adult woman who will always speak up. I'm Mm -hmm. not asking you to tow a very, very strict line. I'm just asking you to give people the basic care. Just before you touch them, ask them if it's okay. Before you tell them something, I want you to review the words in your brain to make sure that you're not doing this out of fear. I want you to make sure that what you're telling them is actually evidence-based and isn't your own biases coming out. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's too much to ask. And I will demand it from here on out. I will always demand that. And, and, you know, I, I love doctors and I love nurses, but you don't get to get away unscathed. You have to practice consensual care or you need to be called out because we will never be able to fix our medical system if we continue to practice in the way that we're practicing. So, okay, Sarah, you brought up a really good point about being kind of tethered to, you know, restrictions and what you can and can't say and what you can and can't do as a nurse and providers have those same um, kind of, you know, restrictions and their, their hands are tied. And I talk about that a lot. You guys, if you're new here, then this may be the first time you're hearing me, but if you're not new here, you know, I talk about that your providers are human and that they can only do so much that laws and their insurance policies and hospital policies, their bosses actually tell them what they can and cannot do. But Sarah, from a nurse's standpoint, how does it impact your care as a nurse when you know or see a doctor practicing from this fear-based place, from this place of, wow, that was not consensual because it must impact you as a nurse, even if you're not able to do something about it, it must impact you on an emotional and a mental level. Oh yeah. Incredibly. So, and that's, it's, it's hard because like I said, I, I have that personality where I'm, you know, I don't just quietly stand by. And so, you know, sometimes I have found myself, um, talking to the patient and saying, you know, you don't have to do that. You do or have we can talk about, yes, we can talk about other options or you looked like maybe you weren't totally comfortable with that, you know? Um, but sometimes things happen quickly where there isn't that pause where the provider has stepped out of the room, but there's this like, okay, so this is what I think that we're going to, we're going to do. Actually, that is that that's even more bothersome is not this, hey, this is what I think we should do. It's this, this is what we're going to do when the provider comes in and says, so I'm going to break your water Mm-mm. because blah, 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 blah. And the woman goes, okay. Because, and, and then they call that, that that's consent. Well, no, because you didn't talk to her about here's the risks and the benefits and, you know, here's, you know, um, just giving options. You know, it was just this like, here's what's happening now. 
Well, yeah. I think there's a difference between being told what to do and and consent. Like if you right. are told what you have to do or yes. you're only given one option, that's yes. not consent. That's Correct. called being told what to do. Yes. Right. Yeah. If you are presented with options and then you as the consumer of medicine, as the birthing person, as the patient, as the paying client, you're paying these people to give you care. If you then get to choose, that is consensual care. That is you having choices. But someone telling you what to do or someone telling me that you only have one option, that is not free will of choice. That is not no. consensual care. That is your provider telling you what they're going to do to your body. Okay, mm -hmm. so on the other side of that, as an L&D nurse, mm -hmm. You have undoubtedly had patients that you did not jive well with, right? That they weren't your favorite clients, your favorite patients, and you probably were not their favorite nurse either. You mm -hmm. just you didn't jive. And that's sure. okay. It's mm -hmm. human, right? It's mm -hmm. human interaction. We're going to get that. Yeah. Patients often feel like they can't ask for a new nurse. And I'm a big fan of reminding people, if you don't like your nurse, no offense, but they probably don't like you either. It would be better for everyone in the room to just ask for a new nurse. I would love to hear from you straight from an L&D nurse. Is it offensive? How do you find out? Do you then have hard feelings to those patients or is it really better for everyone in the room? I It's absolutely better for everyone. I mean, you know, if you're not feeling comfortable with the care that you're, that you're getting. Um, if you are feeling like this person isn't getting me, isn't understanding my birth goals, isn't supporting my birth goals. You're feeling like, because it's not just from providers, it's nurses too, who are, who can put the pressure on you mm -hmm. to, um, you know, if you're, if you're wanting to go unmedicated and they're saying, oh, are you sure? Like we could do this or we could do this. And they're trying to push it. And because, you know, nurses too, um, especially I see this with newer nurses. Um, if they've not had an unmedicated birth, it can be a little unsettling <laughs> because you don't know what to do. And in training, if most of your hospital, if you have 80, 90% of your patients getting epidurals, even during your training, you may not see very many unmedicated births. If at all. And if at all. And then it, it's, then it's also dependent upon the person who's training you. Are they comfortable with it? How well are they supporting it? And so it really is dependent upon the nurse that you get to how comfortable they are, because I have seen new nurses, you have an unmedicated um, patient, and she's doing good, she's rocking her labor. And all of a sudden, you see that epidural cart going by. And you and, oh, she's getting an epidural, you know, which who you see the relief on, on the nurse's face. Um, so it's, you know, I, I will be honest and say that I can't say that there's never hard feelings because we're human. And um, sometimes it is that we're, you know, we aren't meeting. Sometimes, I mean, you feel bad if you feel like you aren't meeting their needs, you okay. aren't able to meet their needs. Sure. And, and, but that's okay. 
Because at the end of the day, it is like you said, it's your birth story. It's you don't have to worry about hurting someone else's feelings and have your own story interrupted because you didn't want to hurt so-and-so's feelings. They're going to go home. They're going to deal with it. They're going to get assigned another patient. They're going to be okay. They're not going to have trauma from that, but you may have trauma from your, from not speaking up. And so a hundred percent, if you are not feeling comfortable with the nurse that you have for whatever reason, speak up. It's okay. It's okay. You know, and you aren't, you don't have to worry that the next person's going to be like, oh my gosh, well, you already, you know, are, you know, that they're not going to come in with an attitude. Um, you know, we understand it does happen and it's perfectly fine and it's not going to disrupt your care in any way to, you know, to speak up if you're not jiving with that person. Yeah. Get a new nurse because you, you know, it, it, it affects things. You have to feel comfortable with the people who are in the room and your nurse is, you know, you have a lot more um, contact with your nurse than you do with your provider. And so if you would not be okay with just any old provider, you know, don't be okay with just any old nurse, you know? It's fine. Have it, folks, yeah. right out of the mouth of an LD nurse. And Sarah, can we talk about too how uncomfortable it is to well, it's a it's a learned comfort to be able to sit with someone who is experiencing pain and not feel the need to take that pain away. I cannot take your pain away. I can help you, I can help you manage it. I can help you cope with it. I can help lessen that pain. I can help remind you that this is the only pain in your life that has a purpose. But you as a provider, as a nurse, as a doula, as a partner, have to be in the headspace and have coped with pain yourself that you are able to be in the space of someone who is in pain and still be grounding for them to remind them, this is good pain. You're okay. You're safe and I'm safe and I'm calm and I want you to be calm. Mm -hmm. Again, I think that that's where it's so important that there's a mindset shift that happens before they're in labor, because it's so important for us to recognize that, yes, we have this idea that pain equals something is wrong in, you know, most instances. And so we have to shift our thinking. Um, and quite honestly, even in my own experience, I would say it's not as much pain as it is this intense experience. It's so vastly different than any other sort of pain that if we can get ourselves to recognize it as different, this, this is different. This isn't a something's wrong, you know, pain. This is like an intensity. Um, I don't remember where I first heard this quote, but oh my gosh, I do love it. If we can teach women, the, the contractions cannot be stronger than me because they are me, right? Like this is you partnering with your body and this is you experiencing what your body is doing. And so helping, you know, support people and helping the woman to keep focused on like, 
this, like you said, this is productive. This means your body is doing exactly what it's supposed to. And so these contractions that you're experiencing are a good sign. So if we can instead shift ourselves to be like, no, this is great. This means your body is doing exactly what it's meant to do. You know, you're laboring, you're feeling that contraction, you're the cervix dialing, dilating, and just, we, again, it's that mindset shift. And, and that has to happen before you're in the heat of it, because it's that much more difficult to kind of shift your way of thinking if you have not been working on that ahead of time. What's well, almost impossible to shift to that in labor because your brain's not working at full capacity. Your right. brain is now in contraction mode, right? Um, I call it labor land, birth brain, a couple different names. Your brain is not, you're not thinking about dinner. You're not thinking about your other children. You're not thinking about, you know, school pickup. You are truly just thinking on contractions. How many times, Sarah, have you heard people come out of labor and be like, I don't remember that at all. Or like my labor was how long? Yes. What? You get into this vortex, people. If, if you're pregnant and you're listening, you've never had a baby before and you're prepping for, for birth, you're going to enter this birth brain labor land vortex where you truly lose touch with reality for a minute. You truly lose touch with the outside world because your sole focus is in delivering your baby. And so it is, it's nearly impossible to, to make that mindset shift in labor. And that is why we do not take people past seven months pregnant and we require at least six meetings with us. And we have extremely strict curriculum for people to go through because we have nailed it down to an exact science on how to master your mindset, how to prepare your body, how to prepare your partner, how to prepare your birth plan, how to have these conversations with your doctor, when these conversations are appropriate, how should you structure your language and your questions in order to properly have and navigate these conversations. It is, like I say, the control method is just broken down to an exact science and how to accomplish this. And so it's, it's nearly impossible to make that shift in, in labor while you're actually um, laboring. All right. I want to pull this full circle and circle back to one thing that you said in the beginning that I want to leave our listeners with. And that is this idea of collective community pushback. We as consumers of medicine have been go with the flow. We have been taught as a nation, as a society, as consumers to not push back on our doctors. If you have a white coat, you're always right. If you have MDs, you are the smartest person. Um, if you, you know, if you're a doctor, if you're a provider, your patients should just kind of do what you say. Providers have this mentality and so many consumers of medicine have this mentality and it's dangerous and it's killing us. And so as a collective community, how do we begin to push back respectfully, safely, but also in a way that we are making forward strides for ourselves and everyone to come after us? That's a big question. <laughs> Loaded question here, seven layer dip. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think, I think the first thing that is something that we can do right now, here and now, is this educating ourselves, 
educating ourselves and not being afraid to challenge and question a recommendation, um, you know, why your provider is asking you to do certain things, um, asking for things that we want. Like I said in the beginning, you want a provider in particular, you want that provider to special you, speak up, ask. Instead of just saying, oh, well, that's not how they do it. Let's start saying, hey, this is what I really want. And this is, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, I guess, however you look at it, a lot of hospital practices and things have become this um, customer service, you know, how they're rated um, in their customer service. And if we start saying, hey, you know what? I don't like this experience. I'm not comfortable with this. And I'm going to go to this other practice who will special me because this is, this is the kind of care that I want. Um, so, you know, becoming as educated as we can, starting to speak up and say, we are the experts. I am an expert on my body. I know how my body works. Um, I'm going to come to you for advice. You're going to make recommendations. I feel comfortable asking you, why are you making that recommendation? And what do you think about this? And, you know, just being much more of advocates for ourselves and then speaking up against the things that we don't like to see, you know, Hey, um, I had this experience and I, you know, don't like the way that this went. And, um, you know, it, it's a process. It's going to be a process. You know, it was, it's kind of that frog in the boiling, um, the pot of boiling water that has happened when, when I look at where we are today and I think, how in the world did we get here? How did we get to a place where like women have been giving birth since literally the dawn of time? And so how do we get to a place where like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I know how to, I, I, I don't, I don't know how to de deliver. I don't know how to birth. Like, what do you mean? Of course. Like your body was designed that way. You don't need somebody to tell you how to do it. You don't need somebody to tell you this is what's going to happen. You know, I mean, education in, in the process is great and wonderful and, and beautiful. And I'm not saying like that you shouldn't be well-informed in what's going on in your body. But at the end of the day, even if you knew nothing about it, your body would birth your baby perfectly. If you were by yourself, <laughs> you know, which, you know, of course is not the ideal situation, but, but neither is where we are today, where like, you're just told this is, this is what's going to happen to you. And we're going to run it, just stand back, you know? And, and that's where I think we need to start pushing back. We need to start educating ourselves. We need to start believing in ourselves. We need to start empowering each other as women that, you know, Hey, you do have what it takes, you know, more than you think you do. Um, and you know, like, like you're doing and like I'm doing and um, providing this education and this space and speaking up and, you know, more people who are doing that, things have to change because um, when people start saying, I demand different, you know, they, they aren't going to just be able to push us along. Um, and so I think that's, it's going to be a process, but I think that's where it has to start is we have to start believing in ourselves and in our own wisdom and start becoming educated and educating and supporting one another and, you know, um, moving the needle that way.
And just as it was a slow warm up, as we have seen maternity care be progressively and more progressively and more progressively controlling over birthing people, that cool off period is going to be the yeah. same way, you guys. It's not going to change tomorrow. It's not going to change next year. It's not even probably going to change in the next few years. But if we continue to keep going and to keep pushing back and collectively educate ourselves, we can make that difference. I promise you. Um you know, it's not the first time you've heard me say this if you're not new around here, but collectively as white women, we have a responsibility to push back because our black and brown sisters are not being listened to. They don't have the same power that we have in our current medical system. So if you are a white birthing person and you are seeing injustices, if you are experiencing uncompassionate care, if you have witnessed, you know, care that's not consensual, you do have an obligation as a white person to call that out and to make sure that it's known because there's going to be a black and brown person that comes behind you and they're not going to be able to speak up. And if they do, the likelihood that they're listened to is very low. Mm -hmm. So please remember that as white birthing people, I know um, it can feel really heavy to speak up against providers. It can feel even heavier to speak up against obstetrical violence, but we do have a collective responsibility to protect one another. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is to do it as a community. Oh my goodness, Sarah, this has been an amazing conversation. I could geek out with you all day long over this. Truly, truly, truly. Okay. You're launching this amazing thing, traditional motherhood please tell us all about it. And if somebody wanted to work with you or find out more about traditional motherhood or follow along on your Instagram, how do they connect with you, reach out with you, reach out to you, work with you, give us the lowdown. Sure. So I am launching traditional motherhood and traditional motherhood really is this idea of connecting again with the innate wisdom that we have as women. And that's really where the name comes from, the traditional motherhood. It's not about a particular way to birth or this idea of how, you know, motherhood needs to look, but it's looking at, you know, back in, back hundreds of years ago when women, mothers were looked at with um, admiration and wisdom and were, were given that view. And so I really think that we need to get back to that. So um, in my vision with traditional motherhood is to create a community that um, gives empowerment, education and support so that women can craft their ideal birth and go in um, with that in mind, that, that mapped out. Um, and be able to make decisions with that in mind and also to walk away from their experience feeling truly empowered and ready to launch into motherhood, feeling confident um, and not having to deal with any birth trauma baggage. So um, I right now am um, working on building um, a course that is um, all about, I have developed um, the calm formula, which is the four keys that I have found are um, really like the secret sauce to being able to bring that calm to all of the kind of crazy chaotic excitement of um, giving birth and having a new baby. So um, 
right now I am in the process of building the Calm Formula course, but you can get, I have um, a free guide on the four keys to instantly reducing your birth anxiety. And that can be found on my website, traditionalmotherhood.com. Or you can follow me on sarah.traditionalmotherhood on Instagram. So um, I would love to, you know, have your listeners, um, you know, share with me the things that, that their stories and the things that they, you know, want to know more about. Um, as I am building this course, you know, I would love um, like more input on what, you know, exactly um, they're seeing, they, they need help navigating that medical community because having that experience, um, kind of that behind the scenes, you know, um, I absolutely want to share as many things to empower women to have it be the most amazing experience that it can be because it really is. It is like, honestly, the most transformative experience I think that a woman can go through. And, um, we want to ensure that that is a positive one so that she can just walk away feeling so confident and just ready to take on, take on that motherhood. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You guys can see why I love Sarah so much, even the overlap in all of our language and, and her philosophies and just that idea that birthing people are really in control despite what our medical system might have you believe or might try and feed you, you really are in control here. And there are people out there like Sarah and I, and there are really amazing providers and nurses out there and tons of doulas and other patient advocates that we really do stand before you in order to protect this sacred space for you. So if you are feeling like you're not getting that care or you are feeling scared and you don't know where to go or you don't know what your first moves are after finding out you're pregnant, there's a community out here to help you. We're, we're small in number, um, but we are growing every single day and we are here. You don't have to, um, you know, I for lack of a better word, fall victim to the very broken pieces of our maternity care right here in America that we currently have. Hopefully in three, five, seven, ten years, I hope I can look back on this episode and this statement not be true anymore. I really do hope that one day Sarah and I can re-record an episode because this episode is outdated. But right now it's not outdated and it's extremely true and you have a lot of power in in making sure that your birth goes the way that you want and it starts with your mindset it starts with your education and your preparation and you know that i have said this from the day i got trained as a doula the antidote to fear is education and preparation that is a core piece of the control method it is the two foundational pieces if you can have the proper education and you can have the proper preparation you can have a fearless birth. You can have a birth that has absolutely zero fear involved. I'm going to leave you guys with this. I want you to challenge your own personal thinking and mindset. What if we saw birth as a natural, undisturbed process that happens the majority in homes rather than the majority in hospitals? What if we went back to nature and biology and we began trusting our bodies and we only birthed with extra interventions when it was medically necessary? 
Happy Tuesday, you guys. I hope I've gotten your wheels turning. Sarah, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I will see you guys on Friday again for another Friday free talk. Until then, you know where to find me. Please connect with Sarah. Toodaloo. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I truly do value this community and I love hanging out with you. If you found today's episode helpful, share it with a friend. Share it with someone who might also find this information helpful. I'd love to hear what you have to say and read your sweet words on iTunes. You can leave us a review and this helps get this information into the hands of parents who might also benefit from hearing it. If you're interested in joining The Birth Lounge, you can go to thebirthlounge.com. Our blog is linked there. You can find all sorts of free information as well as how to get your access to The Birth Lounge. You can always hang out with me on Instagram as well, at Tranquility by Hehe. Until then, stay educated, stay supported, stay confident. Just a friendly reminder that nothing in this podcast is to be used as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult your healthcare provider with any questions or concerns you have about your health or anything discussed in this podcast. Side effects may include educated adults, informed decision-making skills, and consensual care. Tranquility by Hehe and the Birth Lounge are not responsible for any ideal births that were created with this podcast. The birth parent deserves all the credit.